The title of today's talk is A Well-Centered Mind. I'd say that a well-centered mind, a well-focused mind, is, to me, unquestionably, a prerequisite for a satisfactory existence. It really couldn't be otherwise, because our experience of life, we experience life through the mind. If the mind is not working, is not centered, is not focused, uh, how our experience is also not centered, not focused, is blurred, blurred. We experience mind through the five senses, the five ordinary senses, plus a sixth one. The five senses meaning seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and touching. And the sixth sense, which is always mentioned in the uh, traditions from the Indian subcontinent anyway, Buddhist, Hinduist, etc., are our thoughts, our feelings, our sense of being. You see, we don't connect with the world out there only. We also connect with the world in here. In fact, consider the sense of touch. Sure, I touch with my hand something out there. But also, the same sense of touch, proprioception, I think it's called in the, in the technical language, the sense of touch allows me to know that I'm moving my arm. How do I know I'm moving my arm? Because there's an inner sense of touch. So touch also turns inwards. Right? And of course, so does taste. Sometimes we have this funny taste in the mouth that doesn't come from outside. It's our body that's doing it. So it's, it's very appropriate to consider the sense that connects us with our insight as a sixth sense. So again, well-centered mind, well-centered experience. The concern of today's talk is how do we achieve such a mind? That involves two questions. The first question is, how do we focus the mind? And the second question, where do we focus the mind onto? I'll take these two questions in order. So I was wondering how to deal with this topic of focusing the mind. And some weeks ago, I had a thought, and I put it in practice. And I went to a shop, and I bought a gadget, and I brought it here, and it's in this bag.
So let me be a little mysterious for a moment. Maybe you've guessed what I have in there? Maybe not. You know, the bag was a little small, so I have to strain. Whoops, can I get it out? What if I cannot get it out? It's coming, but slowly. Before it was easier, but you know, should have gotten a bigger bag too. Ah, there it is. In the meantime, I keep you guessing, right? Did you guess? Ta da! -da! A telescope. Hey, this is a proper thing to practice focusing, right? <laughs> it is. Ah, whoops, yeah, take these things out. Ah. Okay, I'm not going to spend too much time playing with it now. Just, just pretend. Pretend. And looking through the telescope. So, first thing I have to do is clean up all the muck on the lenses. They were reasonably clean, that wasn't uh, very much of a problem. The first thing I, I thought I could do without a tripod, but it became very clear that I couldn't see a darn thing if I held it by hand because, uh, you know, telescope magnifies things, and a very slight movement gets magnified, and so So the stability is very important. Well, cleaning was very important. Take care of that. N number two, focusing. Oh, yes. Beautiful. It has a knob here, you know, to focus on wherever it is. Direct it to whatever you want to, and focus it here. But then the stability was a very important thing. Not just of the tripod, but of the surface I put it on. And I, I wouldn't claim that this is such an extraordinary surface, but it's the best I could find. So finally, when I, the thing wasn't shaking, it was clean, and I could I learn how to focus it, I could make some reasonable observations, coherent observations of whatever it was, you know. And, um, but it took some practice. It didn't work out just immediately. So why are we talking about the telescope? Simply because it's a, a metaphor, an analog for the mind. All this I've said applies to the mind even more so. First of all, we have to clean up the muck in our mind, all the preconceptions, all the delusions, 
all the filtering of facts off that are equivalent to a dirty lens. And then we have to steady the mind, because the mind, just as an unstable telescope, likes to go from here to there. Oh, yes, and she told me that, and I told him this. And, uh, and what am I going to do tomorrow? And, uh, and so, or sometimes even around one particular issue, the mind is not used to stay put. It's more in the habit of running around, looking around, looking for something, whatever it is. So we need to stabilize it and, and practice the stabilizing. And, and then focus, but yeah, we don't have an arm, so again, it takes a lot of personal practice. I'm going to be with a breath. Let me narrow the focus on the breath and stay there. Persuade the mind to stay on whatever it is until it's steady and it's fully present with whatever the, it is. The, object the mind chooses, we choose for the mind, no, the mind yeah, chooses, matters little. Could be any bodily sensation, including those accompanying the breath. And, and so the focusing is by developing a willingness to be fully there, to stop running around chasing after this or that thought or, oh yes, what a nice thought. Maybe I'll do that uh, with my granddaughter next week or, or whatever it is, or with my daughter or with my son or whatever. All of this which uh, the Buddha in my teachings are inspired by the Buddha's teachings. Um, the Buddha in his language called Papancha, which translate as proliferation of thought. Yes, of thought. Now, for all of this, it does help to create an environment that is conducive to steadiness. And all this uh, that uh, Raquel and me have been saying about uh, silence has to do with steadying the mind. Otherwise, all these inputs of sounds and words distracts us and make it shake. So, in the retreat we have some precepts that we abide by and a major precept is silence. That is silence of conversation, of course. I'm talking and in the inquiry you will talk and in the groups you'll have an opportunity to talk to. But whatever talk emerges is from a background of silence, from a steady base of silence. Uh, there are a few other precepts that we abide by on retreat, and it's a good time to mention them. Four more. There's a total of five precepts, very simply. Precept number one, 
no killing, obviously, killing of things like little bugs or whatever, just to practice uh, tenderness towards the world, tenderness towards the bugs. If they bother us, well, stay with the bother a little. Take it out in some way, but don't kill it. Practice that. It's not so much for the sake of the bug that I'm saying this, this is for the sake of your mind. Because the bug that you kill keeps bugging your mind. <laughs> Maybe forgiven for playing words. That's of the four precepts besides silence. That's number one. Number two is not taking anything that's not freely given. Very simple. And again, you know, it's not that anybody is going to engage in, in stealing things, but just for the tranquility of your mind, don't do anything that you think is not right. Precept number third, no sexual activity. This is not in any way a condemnation of sexual activities. Simply, this is not the place. This is the place to keep your mind and body tranquil. And fourth and finally, um, no taking of intoxicants. Meaning, not drinking wine, beer, or, or whatever it is that you might wish to drink, and it's again quite normal to, to drink wine sometimes. Why not? Just, just here, keep your mind as tranquil as you can. Okay, let me go back now to the focusing mind. I've talked about how to focus the mind. Now, let me pay attention to where to focus it. And for that, again, we can come back to the telescope analogy. With a telescope, the answer is simple. If you're an astronomer, you look for some body in the sky. If you're a botanist, you may be interested in a certain growth in a tree or a type of tree or whatever, you focus on a particular plant or part of a plant. If you are a bird watcher, for instance, you look for a bird that's not moving, obviously, because otherwise it's hard to catch it. And, uh, I mean, if it's a high-power telescope. But, um, and you watch the bird. But where do we here focus the mind? Sure, to practice, we select arbitrarily something to focus on. That's fair enough. So, bodily sensations are very appropriate, including those who accompany the breath. Sounds and silence are very appropriate. Sure. But our goal here is not to 
figure out the mechanics of the breath, the mapping of sensations, or the patterns of sounds? Not at all. Although, I can't resist this. I, reminded, I, I remember the first time I meditated some 20-odd years ago, 27 years ago, I was a scientist, a full-fledged scientist, imbued in the techniques of science. And I was so excited because now, with all my attention on the breath, I could use what I learned to teach physiology, which was one of the topics I taught. Oh, yes, I have an, a new angle to understand the breath. Well, I've gone a long ways from that. It's okay, you know. We, we, we are who we are. Where I am now, I understand very clearly that the breath is just a training tool. But what is the real goal of the practice so far as where to focus our mind on? It's, it's, it's hard to say this without sounding verbose, you know. In my notes I said, the goal of practice is to penetrate the depth of our being, of our mind. Now I read it, it sounds a little verbose, but, but I mean it. I mean, let me explain it a little better, perhaps. The, this particular um, school of practice, this particular tradition, that of course comes from the Buddha. And in the language of the Buddha is called vipassana, or vipassana, uh, which in English translates as insight. Insight means looking in. <coughs> Although it's spelled inside with G-H-T, it also could, could be called inside meditation. It's not outside meditation, it's inside meditation. So, how, how do we come, become inside meditators, not outside meditators? Well, I thought of the metaphor of the telescope again, and I thought, oh, maybe, if I try hard enough, I could turn it into a U. Uh, I mean, it'd it break, of course, if I do it by hand, but, but maybe somebody could fabricate a telescope, a U-shaped telescope, goes back. Uh, that's not it either, you know. Because it'd be, again, treating the, me, the observer, as the observed Whenever we look through a telescope or through science, we have observer and observed separate. And here, they come together. And, and we don't have the, the ordinary tools for that. That's why meditation is such an esoteric device, esoteric practice. 
Nobody's invented an inner scope. Telescope, yes, but inner scope. Uh, but in a way, there is the equivalent of the inner scope. If we really pay attention of our experience in the world. Because sometimes, as we observe something outside us, we let ourselves be deeply touched by this miracle of opening up to the world. Let, let, me, let me give a, a very concrete example. And I, I've got permission from Raquel to tell this, although maybe she doesn't know what she has allow me to do. Because, you know, in the evening, see, it's carried away by the moon. Oh, come, see the moon. She pulls me out <laughs> to the garden or to the window to see the moon. Particularly a full moon, of course. But then I thought about this. And I understood it much better. It's, it's not that it's only her experience. I have it too, but uh, I'm not so open about it. <laughs> when Raquel, or when any of us like her, really look at the moon and let this observation touch us, we are opening ourselves to ourselves. We are turning on an inner scope. There's a, a wondrous world that becomes available to Raquel or to any of us in that same condition. And it doesn't have to the moon, to, to do with the moon. It has to do with the mind discovering its own capacities. And again, it's hard to explain it. Let me, let me just uh, get a poet to help me this. This is from Kabir, a visionary poet of 15th century India. He said, don't go outside your house to see the flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before gardens and after gardens. And, and in a different uh, mode, but about the same thing, there's this quote from the Buddhist, the Buddha's scriptures that I'm very fond of. Buddha has a, a dialogue with somebody, and this is what the Buddha tells this person who is actually a deity, but anyway, person deity, deva, 
in the language of then. He says, I tell you, friend, that it isn't possible by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos. Yet, it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perception and intellect, that I declare that there is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the cosmos. In other words, we find the world, the whole world, inside us. And then, of course, there's my very dear St. John of the Cross, whose language is incredible. And this is what he says in the canticles, in one of the canticles. What more do you want, O soul? What else do you search for outside when within yourself you possess your riches, delights, satisfaction, fullness, and kingdom, your beloved whom you desire to seek? Your beloved is God, of course. Be joyful and gladdened in your interior recollection with him, for you have him so close to you. Desire him there, adore him there. Do not go in pursuit of him outside yourself. You will only become distracted and wearied thereby, and you shall not find him or enjoy him securely or sooner or more intimately but than by seeking him within you. There is but one difficulty. Even though he does abide within you, he's hidden. Nevertheless, it is vital for you to know his hiding place, so you may search for him there with assuredness. And this soul is also what you ask when with the affection of love you question, where have you hidden? And he goes on a little further down. In order to find him, you should forget, forget all your possessions and all creatures and hide in the secret inner room of your spirit. Remaining hidden with him, you will experience him in hiding, in a way transcending all language and interpretation. Come then, O beautiful soul, since you know now that your desired beloved lives hidden within your heart, strive to be really hidden with him. And you will embrace him within you and experience him with loving, loving affection. Note that he calls you to the, this hiding place. Come, enter into your inner rooms. Shut the door behind you. 
hide yourself a little, even for a moment, for this moment of life on earth. Of course, uh, you know, the language of God is not the language that I use in, in my tradition, but it's the same thing. What the Buddha calls the cosmos, St. John of the Cross calls God, calls the Beloved. So, I found St. John's uh, exhortation enormously powerful. The question is, are we ready to enter our inner rooms? or to talk it in metaphors a little bit, is the hallway leading to our inner rooms cleared of obstacles and impediments? If not, it needs clearing, just as the lenses here need a clearing. Is our inner scope, the telescope I just invented in words, huh? is that our inner scope well-tempered, steady and ready to be focused on <coughs> and to be coherent. If not, it needs tempering, it needs focusing. As I said before, how do we do that? Well, this practice is one way of doing that. We do more retreats, longer retreats, we do daily practice, and this or another tradition, of course, yeah, different ways of doing it. In the Buddhist tradition, there are very specific guidelines for intensive training of the mind. And I, I just wonder whether to take some time to go over this. There, there are specific techniques that do not apply to us here because they require a long preparation, they are only doable in long retreats, and even then, not every, not, they're not for everybody. But, but just very briefly, let me just mention them very briefly. There's a little um, excursion into this practice. The, it's a practice that uses successive stages of concentration to fine-tune the our inner scope. The stages of concentration are called jhanas, spelled J-H-A-N-A-S. And, um, okay, brief detour. There are eight jhanas, the four basic ones is the only ones I'll talk about anyway. But let's uh, do a little reverence to the sound too. In the first jhana, 
we connect with experience much as we will do here over the weekend. We're still thinking um, in the form of talking to ourselves uh, at times or just just plain thinking. And, and the progression through the genus means dropping things gradually so that our hallway is clearer, doesn't have many obstacles. So the thinking is okay, fine, but it gets in the way to greater depth. So we drop the thinking, lo and behold, what can happen, what we invite to happen, but we don't force this to happen, is that we, we, we start feeling a, a great sense of bliss, sometimes physical bliss, sometimes mental bliss, and that uh, escalates. Because when bliss comes to us, we light up inside. Like the bliss of Raquel looking at the moon. Or maybe the second China. <laughs> but then we come to a point where this bliss is a bit too much. It's an, almost on the way. It's too attractive. We are mesmerized by it. But it stops us from going further. So we need to discover a way to say, okay, now I allow, I allow the bliss to drain away, and we enter a stage of tranquility, which is different from bliss and rapture. Sometimes the rapture even has it moving, you know. So we enter a stage of tranquility, which I, I describe as an afterglow. It's like an afterglow that comes to us. That's a, the third step. But this tranquility is still a little shaky. Then we get to the fourth jhana, which is a, a stage of profound, calm, steadiness, equanimity. And, and there we've got a solid basis, like for the telescope. Only this is for the inner scope to really observe. So, th this jhana practice is quite seductive, and, uh, and sometimes uh, we have a hard time moving from one jhana to the next because. Um, so, I, I just want to share with you what some people have said about jhanas after teaching a lot, you know. This, for instance, comes from Ajahn Chah, one of the great uh, 20th century Thai Buddhist masters. He says, when extraordinary blissful clear states arise from inside meditation practice, uh, he's referring to the jhanas, do not cling to them. Although this tranquility has a sweet taste, it too must be seen as impermanent and unsatisfactory. Absorption, that is states of concentration, great concentration, is not what the Buddha found essential in meditation. 
do practice without thought of attaining absorption or any special state. Just know whether the mind is calm or not, and if so, whether a little or a lot. In this way, it will develop on its own. So, having taught about, tell you, told you a little bit about the jhanas, I don't want you to be too seduced by it and say, oh yes, naturally, no need to do next. And, and here again, um, a paragraph from a, a book by Shaila Catherine, who's a very talented teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area. She has a very extensive retreat experience, and she has just published a whole book devoted to the Janus called Focused on Fearless. And yet, it takes time to remind us of the Janus, about which he wrote a whole book, are not essential. Jhana may be considered a bend in the metaphorical road to awakening. The place where the vista opens up onto a breathtaking insight. Eventually, however, the selective attention that Jhana depends upon must also be relinquished as the mind opens in a full response to living insight. Ultimately, the path leads beyond the force of grasping, beyond the duality of this and that, things and nothing, confinement and spaciousness, form and formlessness, and beyond any subset of concentrated states. So, it's good enough just to practice without having to attain any landmarks like first jhana, second jhana, third jhana. And yes, discover what is more appropriate for each of us at whichever stage we are doing more or less intensive practice. And we start that by simply focusing on the breath, as we'll do in a moment, as a means of reaching the inner chambers of our mind, which are our true destination. Insight practice is about getting there, seeing insight the depth of the mind. Seeing directly into the human condition, into our condition, beyond all distractions and attachments that ordinarily populate our mind. It's like looking at the sky without being mesmerized by the beautiful clouds that we can see sometimes, or by about a, an incredible bird flying, or even an airplane, or a glider, or whatever it is, or a comet, you know. 
but actually being able to see beyond that, to see the sky beyond that, to continue to be absolutely in ecstasy when the sky clears and when there's nothing distinctive to see. To, to open to the sky in all its emptiness. Not to dismiss the items, but neither the items, the clouds and the birds and the glider or whatever, but not to cling to them, to see the emptiness as well. This is what the Buddha called to see things as they are. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because to th see things as they are is the title of tomorrow's talk. As for today, in a few moments, I'll reiterate to you how to focus a mind and offer more specific instructions. And so we'll have the opportunity to explore what it means to turn the mind inwards. To see for hands firsthand in, in practice, in meditation, what is the bare experience of life that pervades us? In closing, let me share with you a few verses written by an anonymous, unimportant perhaps, a Flemish woman uh, in the 13th century that somebody picked up in some manuscript from then. Here's what she says. You who want knowledge, seek the oneness within. There you will find the clear mirror already waiting. So let's just uh, at this moment sit for just a few minutes in silence and, and brief, briefly sense the mirror that's waiting there for us to look into it. The mirror that seems to echo the thunder and resonates with it.
the mirror that allows a storm to pervade us and be part of us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.